You know, unlike YouTube, I can actually do Skype pretty well. Stop ragging on my favorite platform for video <laughs> stuff. So do do other like video streaming things work fine for you? Like I don't know, Amazon or Netflix or whatever you Um occasionally uh Vimeo. Um that works okay. Mm-hmm. And whatever Kickstarter uses for their videos. Um the Escapist generally does okay. Hey, this is uh, Control Structure, everyone. Uh, This is episode 45. Uh, I'm Andrew Bailey, and uh, Chris decided that he'd rather be sick uh, for this week. Um, So instead, I have uh, Ian Buck again. Hi, Ian. Hey there. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. How about you? Uh, Well, uh, work has kind of uh, let off a little bit, and uh, I've been playing some video games. Yeah, I noticed that you were into that Borderlands this week. Yeah, so, you know, just, you know, get some time to blow off some steam, I guess. Haha, <laughs> steam. Ha ha ha. So, ironically, this uh, this podcast has a lot of gaming and GPU news in it for some reason, but... Well, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll talk about going anywhere without development. Yes, so, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. So, see, today is September 25th. And that means it's three months until Christmas. Uh, have you finished your st- shopping yet? Oh my gosh, I haven't even finished putting together, you know, my wish list for my birthday, which is next month. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, at least your birthday isn't, like, next to Christmas or something. Yeah, I hear that that kind of sucks for people. Yeah. And, you know, like, you get everything you want on Christmas... And for two days, you're like, yes, I have the best stuff in the world. <laughs> because two days after Christmas, that's when CES happens. And then you begin to want everything for next Christmas. <laughs> you just can't win. <laughs> Unless you just turn off all of the news until, you know, after New Year's. And then... Well, yeah. don't do that, because then you'll miss all of our special, you know, New Year's Eve episodes, which are always fun. Yeah, and uh, everyone else's New Year's stuff. Oh yeah, but they don't matter, just us. <laughs> so, hey, uh, speaking of New Year's, uh, I bet there's parties around New Year's, right? Yeah, I've gone to a few of those. Yeah, um, let's see, we had a, sort of had a party show on the Nexus uh, uh, back last New Year's. Um, excuse me, it seemed like it happened again recently, uh, just this past weekend. Uh, when a studio guy said that, uh, oh, you know, my uh, co-host is going to be out hunting or something, so he got together you, me, uh, a Mac fanboy, mm-hmm. and some guy that likes to douse himself in, well, deer pee. Yep. <laughs> um, hilarity ensues. It was, it was pretty good. It worked really well, considering that we had five people on at once. Yeah, the uh, BlackBerry was amazing. <laughs> it's just everyone shouting BlackBerry just over each other. <laughs> and of course, we had to coordinate it beforehand, so it was just like, who's going next? Ah, all of us, apparently. <laughs> it's the best way. So, uh, let's see, you're pretty much the Google guy around here. 
I suppose so. Even even my classmates call me the Google Nazi. <laughs> so, um, it seemed like a Gmail had an epic hiccup on Monday. Yeah, I actually didn't know about this until uh, I read this article. Apparently, they had two different networks, like, go down at the same time, uh, unrelated, but uh, because of that, you know, they started, the messages started to pile up because they couldn't get through fast enough, and a lot of people ended up not being able to, you know, download um, attachments or, you know, even, even open up regular emails uh, as quickly as usual. And uh, they, they fixed it pretty quick, I think. Yeah, um, it was all over by about four or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, from their blog, it, they report that 71% of messages had no delay. And of the remaining 29, the average delay was just 2.6 seconds. Uh, however, about one and a half percent of messages were delayed for more than two hours. So I guess that makes me and my company in the 1.5%. Wow. Because I had emails from my boss get delayed for like four hours or so. So, yeah, uh, like one of my bosses, the one that sort of acts like the HR person, uh, sent me like all the stuff on 401ks. And she's like, did you get the email uh, from this morning? And I'm like, what email? The one with all the attachments. I was like, I'll look again, but I'm pretty sure I didn't get anything. And she had sent it at 10 o'clock. She pulled it up on her laptop. I walk back into the other room where my, my system is. And, you know, sure enough, it's like 2 in the afternoon and it's still not there. Yeah, so, it's always embarrassing when the uh, company that you're a fanboy of has hiccups like that. So, but uh, let's say then, I think like the actual, like the further up boss, the CEO, had messaged me about some bug or something, and apparently that was, like, just before noon, and I got it about the same time, about four or three or so. Hmm. So, yeah. I'm in the 1.5%, so I'm rich, but I'm not the richest. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, I guess that uh, Chris might have been busy playing uh, Grand Theft Auto V uh, yesterday, well, turns out that he was just sick. Yeah, sick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's apparently a coffee shop name, uh, named java.update in uh, Grand Theft Auto V. And it also has uh, like some bit of Java code on the... Uh, on the whatever... On the menu? The yeah. menu? Yeah. Public int bread, public int bacon, public void sandwich is a function that... Uh, Turns bread into two, turns bacon into two, and returns bread plus bacon. Which is invalid syntax. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. So, but, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. I always appreciate when developers put in jokes like that. So, um... Uh, let's see. The first time we had you on, we didn't really have a uh, interview process... And I guess somehow we forgot about it the second time. So I'm Which is really odd, because I swear I remember us talking about it last time I was on. Huh. I might have mentioned it to you on some other show, but... Mm. Anyways, uh, now for a control structure interview.
what inspires you? Well, um, in terms of like what I mean, I'm I'm inspired by a, a good story. Um, you know, I'm really really into uh, you know the creation of um, you know drama, not just drama, but you you know what I mean, like. Uh, any any good plot line, um, I mean that's why I watch so much TV and play <laughs> story based video games, um, and I get so into them. I you know I'm probably one of those people that has trouble distinguishing uh, you know reality from fiction, <laughs> <laughs> and so, I, I'm okay with that oddly enough. So um, hey, that's good. Uh, any, what inspires you to make things? Um. Well, a lot of the things that I that I make or that I you know dream about making um, are based off of things with good stories. I mean, like the one one of the one of the projects that I have going in my head right now is uh, I want to make um, a uh, a program that'll plot hyperspace routes through the high, the Star Wars galaxy, and that's obviously uh, you know because I am in love with Star Wars, which has a great story. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, and it's just a, you know a, an incredible universe, very very well put together, uh, even though you know it's been made by many 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 different authors. Right. So uh, that brings back memories of my discrete mathematics class, where we would uh, construct graphs and uh, like do a uh, like and apply algorithms such that you know this is the uh, route with the shortest uh, path. Mm-hmm. through, like, all these nodes, and the minimum spanning tree, you know, like, visit all the nodes with the shortest possible paths through them. So, in other words, it's not just a straight, linear route. It can branch off and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, what got you started in computers and technology? Um, so, my family has only had a computer since like, I don't know, 1999 or so. Um, and at the time, you know, I thought, you know, this is the beginning of computers. Like, you know, I didn't know that anything existed before that. Um, and I, I just kind of enjoyed messing around with it, like changing the colors, you know, of the windows and, you know, general kind of settings like that. And, um, so I, I started out with, you know, just messing around with, with, windows and its settings and you know changing backgrounds and stuff but over time you know i got into more complicated things like you know troubleshooting when things went wrong figuring out what was going on and um eventually you know like that that was kind of the extent to which i um interacted with computers for a really long time until i came to college and then i was like you know I hear that computer science is like a thing. <laughs> maybe I should maybe I should go try that out and see how how I like it. And uh, I'm, well, I'm still with it. So, <laughs> hey, that's great. Uh, did you have any other ideas for a major? Not really. Um, I I work at uh, camp during the summers, and I was just like, you know, I could do this for the rest of my life. You know, just during the summers, work at camp, and uh, I don't know, during the school year not work at camp. <laughs> so, I, had, yeah. I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do for a major. Yeah, just in little tiny spurts at a time. Mm-hmm. And so what was your first gigantic technical accomplishment? Um, 
Well, so far I would say it was building uh, my desktop. And even though, even though you know, those are nowadays pretty much just kind of put to the pieces together the way that they fit together and are mostly idiot-proof, I, uh, I, I was pretty proud of myself. Um, I actually I put together a desktop for my parents, a really, really cheap one, just to make sure that I knew how, how it worked before I built my gaming desktop because uh, I didn't want to just screw everything up on my first try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, let's see, I remember putting, uh, well, sort of rebuilding a PC back in 2005 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, the only really thing I was, like, totally scared about was putting the heat sink on the CPU. Um, it was, like, yeah. one of, it was one of those uh, Athlon XP CPUs. So, like the, uh, like, the die was more or less exposed on the top of the thing. And if you didn't get the heatsink positioned just right, it would not contact that thing, like, properly. And, like, you turn it on, and, like, in a second, your CPU just toast. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, unfortunately, I must have uh, static-bombed the hard drive in there, because that didn't want to turn on anymore. <laughs> so... Um, I think that I did have some backups there, and I was able to, like, install Windows sort of beside that, so. Um, what tools do you use right now, and have they changed any? Um, well, so when I, when I started, uh, doing, you know, computer science classes here, uh, once we started, like, using Java, we, we started off on JEdit, which is a really really simple text editor and then we switched to eclipse which of course i mean everybody knows what eclipse is um and uh, we still use eclipse for most of the big java projects that we do um right now i'm in a class called models of computing systems which is basically teach us as many different languages as possible in the shortest amount of time possible <laughs> and don't actually let us learn anything about them uh, so we like Every single week we have a new lab, and each new lab has a different language. So we started off with Bash and, you know, just shell scripts, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, once I learned those, you know, learned the basics of those, I was like, oh, my gosh, I could totally reproduce uh, Andrew Bailey's, you know, backup uh, <laughs> script. Um, then we did Ruby, um, and we we actually did the same lab twice, once with bash scripts, once with um, Ruby scripts, and that was a lab where we uh, were unpacking tarballs full of um, um, log data from the from the lab computers on, you know, uh, all of the, like, failed login attempts from, <laughs> you know, over the summer, because apparently people have nothing to do over the summer, so they just go and try to hack universities, uh, you know, computers. And, uh, and so we were, we were packaging those into JavaScript um, HTML files so that we could get nice, um, you know, graphs and visualizations of, of that data. And so we did that lab in, in Bash and then in Ruby. And this week we're starting on C and uh, memory allocation. And I'm kind of afraid of, of what we're going to be getting into with that. Um, but so yeah, this this year I've you know been using the terminal way more than I've ever used it before in my life, and uh, using Emacs, which is kind of atrocious. Yeah, um, let's see. Like when I first got started with Linux, 
Um, like I sort of got used to Vi uh, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like with the like the colon Q or something to exit out of it. And, oh yeah. Uh, and uh, and then I uh, started using was it Nano? It's a lot better to use, like a lot easier to use rather. So and uh, you know, like especially if you get a lot of uh, knowledge in how to use the terminal, then you can you know essentially SSH is the same exact thing. Yeah. So, um, let's see. Then, uh, have you, have you gone across, uh, PowerShell? Um, other than the one script that, you know, you, the, the backup script, which you ported to PowerShell, not really. Um, I mean, I can't imagine having to do large, like, you know, file manipulation things the way that you can easily do in bash, uh, on my windows box. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I just I don't I just don't have those usage cases uh, right. on my on my personal computer. Yeah, um, yeah. PowerShell is like this unholy combination between Bash and .NET. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I I mostly did that. You know, it's like okay, well, I'm pretty sure it's like hey, PowerShell is supposed to be sort of like Bash on Windows. So I managed to, you know, uh, you know, port it over and you know, sort of study up on this a little bit. So, and you know, thank goodness it didn't take me a whole lot of time to do that. Thank goodness it works. Yeah. So, and Eclipse, you know, there's a lot of things named Eclipse, but you know, the IDE. Anyway. Yeah, the IDE. Yeah. So. Oh, well, and uh, so earlier in my classes, we used to use uh, Subversion all the time for. Like all of our, you know, typically you would be using it as a um, um, version control system, but we use it basically just for turning in assignments. And uh, and now we've started switching over to GitHub because, as I, uh, I quote my professor, it's what the cool kids use these days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, see, for every job that I've been paid for, I have used Eclipse in some flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see, uh, the first, like, big job out of college was, uh, I think it was using IBM Rational, uh, like the IBM Rational suite, and that was essentially a bunch of uh, Eclipse plugins, plus uh, some other stuff, and the IBM Rational suite is just atrocious. Um, so, let's see, then, uh, you know, I pretty much used uh, let's see, I've used Subversion quite a bit in college, um, and uh, use it at work. Now, this is one job I have at work. Um, my team lead hates Git for some reason. Huh. He, he seems to have the hardest time. And, uh, you know, like I asked him about it, like when I initially, uh, you know, started there, he's like, if you have Subversion set up, use Subversion. Hmm. <laughs> so... Excuse me. And uh, he said, like, uh, last week or two weeks ago, he said, I know I'm going to lose, like, all of my geek cred for this, but this is 2012. Can't we have GUIs for everything? Like, I shouldn't have to, like, dick around on the uh, on the command line to commit code. Yeah. So. I'm surprised that, like, um, Google Drive doesn't have anything quite like it. But of course, you know Google Drive is for plebs. So, 
So and um, let's see. I mentioned that the uh, the GitHub Windows client is actually not that bad. Wait, uh, do they do they have a a client other than their website? Yeah, like they have oh. like they sort of have like a, a Metro style uh, client. Oh, interesting. So that's that's how I got my uh, blog up on GitHub, which reminds me I need to refresh that thing again. <laughs> now for this week's LOL Apple. Uh, have you heard that the new iPhones have a fingerprint sensor? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was like their kind of big selling point was it's gold and uh, it has a fingerprint sensor. Yeah, and apparently has like a 64-bit CPU or something. Yeah, that was that was interesting. Initially, I was like, oh, good for them. What's that going to do for them that nobody else can do? Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a cell phone. Um, yeah, exactly. Like, you pretty much have to be crunching a whole lot of numbers really fast for 64-bit to make sense. Mm-hmm. But, hey, it's 2013. Uh, Moore's Law has almost ended, but look at all this cool stuff we have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, why not? But, uh, hey, why not a fingerprint sensor? Hey, why not hack the uh, fingerprint sensor and defeat the purpose of its existence? <laughs> it's like, well, that's what the Chaos Computer Club has done. Uh, they have uh, essentially uh, like taken a photograph of someone's fingerprint... Uh, say, on the screen of said iPhone, uh, cleaned it up and uh, printed it off at extremely high resolution uh, and with a lot of toner on it. And they took some... Let's see, I think they said took some glue or, uh, let's say, like some milk something or pink latex milk or w- white wood glue and smeared it into that pattern created by, you know, all that toner. <laughs> and then they somehow separated that stuff from the paper and uh, pressed it up against the sensor, and apparently that's how they got around not having, not actually having that fingerprint on their finger. Yeah, and um, I, they said that, like, the, the only thing that was really special about this particular finger sensor is that it just has a higher resolution than other fingerprint sensors. So they just had to up the resolution of the, you know, image that they took of the fingerprint itself. Yeah. So, and uh, he says that, uh, uh, one of the guys here says, We hope this finally puts to rest the illusions people have about fingerprint biometrics. It is plain stupid to use something that you can't change and that you leave everywhere every day as a security token. I want my cell phone to unlock when I lick it because nobody has a tongue quite like mine. (laughs) Uh, you know, that might actually be something. (laughs) And you don't exactly leave tongue marks everywhere. Maybe you don't. Are you trying to imply something about your behavior? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. What are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, I don't go around licking things. I mean, I don't really send envelopes too much. Uh, nobody does. So, like, it has to be pretty rare. So, but uh, yeah. And, uh, like, apparently everyone's getting so excited about fingerprint sensor, fingerprint sensor. Well, me and Chris have an IBM ThinkPad from, like, six years ago. Oh, yeah. And it has a fingerprint sensor on it. 
And this is like from six years ago. Yeah, actually a lot of uh, HP laptops have those too, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, take that, Apple. <laughs> so, um, Gabe Newell asks, is a man not entitled to a gaming operating system? No, says Microsoft. You will take what you what we give you. No, says Apple. We will tell you what you want. No, says the stall man, because everything is proprietary. Yes, says Linus. Build it yourself. But Gabe thought differently, and did what everyone else is doing. He stole Linux. And Valve has announced Steam OS. I'm really excited for this. Even though I don't have a television and I have no reason to use a device uh, using SteamOS, uh, I'm pretty excited for it to come out. Because so. it's it's the approach, it's like the only approach that I can think of that really makes sense for Valve to try to get into the living room. Yeah, um, and with their, uh, with Gabe saying that uh, Windows 8 is a disaster for everyone in the PC space, they're actually doing something about it. Yeah. I was I was actually very puzzled by you know Gabe Newell's comments about you know Windows is is the wrong thing for us to be to be you know sticking with and Windows 8 is a disaster because I was like what are you talking about you can still install everything on Windows 8 you know whether Microsoft gets a cut of it or not um, and yeah. I was really confused about it. But now that they've come out with SteamOS, it all makes sense because they wouldn't be able to offer this for free if it was based off of Windows. Yeah, so uh, as as implied, this is based off of Linux. So mm -hmm. this uh, seems to be, uh, you know, more or less uh, a distribution, you know, sort of like pretty much any other distribution except that it is dominated by, uh, you know, like Steam packages and Steam applications. Yeah, um, and Valve says that it's still going to be completely open. You can still, you know, modify any part of it. They're they're releasing it so open source. So, well, yeah, so that you know, if you want to actually go and fud fuddle around with the actual operating system itself, you can. Um, so and this this seems to be, you know, this is just you know me speculating, but you know, just going to take the Linux kernel, you know, as is, and you know, add a few packages onto it. But I put a GUI over it. Yeah, I'd I'd imagine the Steam stuff would be closed source though, but yeah, they might just have like kind of the the Steam application itself for Linux, and it just kind of boots into that. Yeah, that's, that's probably what it is. Yeah. So there there does seem to be one advantage to using SteamOS over just installing Linux onto a box and then installing Steam on that because Valve is putting a huge effort into making, you know, GPU drivers and audio drivers and uh input lag, you know, improving all on all of those fronts. Yeah. So and I'd say that Linux is, you know, a pretty good, you know, is a pretty good start to that. Because, you know, not only is it open source, but, you know, it's pretty much the same with everything else. Like, if you build a computer that plays games really well, it does a whole lot of other things really well. True. You know, like, it pretty much does everything well except maybe, like, really heavy server duties and video encoding. Pretty much everything else it's going to be really good at. Yeah. So, 
you know, if, uh, you know, Linux turns more towards gaming, it should improve a lot of other things as well, uh, underneath, you know, because, you know, like, as you said, the input lag, um, you know, everyone wants a responsive system, <clears throat> no matter, you know, what you use it for. Yeah. And if you don't, you're lying. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so this is definitely a change away from Windows. Um, so it, it turns out that uh, Gabe uh, might have had a hand in making Windows the, go, the go-to PC operating system for games. Uh, apparently he was involved in porting Doom to Windows. So and that would have been back when he was still at Microsoft, I think, right? Oh, yeah. So maybe he can do the same for Linux. So uh, a poster on NeoGAF has... Uh, you know, pointed out this. So, you know, back when, uh, you know, Windows really got uh, a foothold, uh, this was probably back in Windows 3.1. Um, you know, every, oh, yeah, I remember those days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that was back when I didn't have a computer, uh, you know, in the house. I had to, like, go over to my uncle's. Um so Gabe uh, was saying that you know I was the producer of the first three releases of Windows. It was common wisdom that it wasn't possible to write a good game in Windows because of well unnamed technical reasons. This was annoying. <laughs> so he went out and found uh, Doom, which was like the most popular game at the time, and uh, you know he got a hold of uh, John Carmack and said, "Hey, we'll port this to Windows for free." So, uh, apparently that happened, but uh, it also turns out that uh, the uh, the Windows Doom port wasn't actually all that popular. So, at least it wasn't, like, uh, heavily used as well as the DOS version anyway. Well, back then, I suppose, uh, they only had physical distribution, so they would have had to, you know, like, advertise that, hey, this is on Windows now, too. So, but in uh, later... Uh, releases of Doom that uh, that you know the Windows port was in there. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, interesting. So yes, along with uh, Steam OS, uh, Valve has announced Steam machines. I saw somebody comment that uh, you know they're really missing out on an opportunity here. They should have named them uh, Steam engines. Yes, I saw that as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so they're just. They're partnering up with uh, some unnamed manufacturers, hardware manufacturers, to create all sorts of different types of living room boxes. Uh, you know, the, some of them will concentrate on having competitive prices. Some of them will concentrate on reduced noise. Some of them will concentrate on high performance. Um, so basically, there will be a steam machine for any occasion. Yep. So, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, would, uh, you know, like HP and uh, Dell and stuff be interested in any of these? Um, That's an interesting question. Um, I would say probably Dell not so much because they are actively trying to just kind of transition into only enterprise stuff. Yeah, they did just go private, so they're all sort of, you know, I guess they're all sort of, uh, you know, uh, busy with that. Yeah. Um, I also hear that Asus, or not Asus, uh, Acer is uh, sort of unhappy with uh, the direction of Windows. So I wouldn't be surprised if Acer has a Steam machine. 
And uh, plus, there's that uh, uh, that one piston company. Oh yeah, that was the the one thing that everyone said. Oh look, Steambox. Yes, but not and, really. <laughs> has that even come out yet? I mean, I'm not sure. Because I, I we heard all about it at CES, and then. They were like, yeah, it's coming later, and then Valve was like, oh, we're not actually partnering with them anymore, and then we never heard anything about it. Yeah. So, apparently this will be coming uh, next year. Yep, those are coming in 2014, but in the meantime, you can sign up for the beta, where they will be sending Valve-made uh, prototypes to 300 people, 300 very, very lucky people. Uh, and those those are going to be the uh, high performance focusing types. <laughs> yeah. So uh, having been left behind by the new console generation by choice, uh, Nvidia is fully supporting SteamOS and Linux. Which is a very interesting turn of events because uh, didn't Linus Torvald have some very specific things to say to Nvidia yes. about Nvidia's behavior? Um, at least on the open source side, yeah. Um, but their uh, their proprietary drivers are actually pretty good, aside from them not being open source. So uh, you know, uh, if you go back, you know, pretty much since ever, uh, Nvidia has you know supported their products quite well on Linux, um, in some capacity, uh, unlike uh, ATI, um, although Intel. Uh, although not having very good performing hardware, uh, has actually had a lot of open source drivers. Mm. So, you know, and uh, you know, having you know one of the uh, leading GPU manufacturers, you know, supporting you know SteamOS, that's definitely a good thing. And it does explain how Valve was able to you know claim that they've made such great improvements in drivers. Yes. So, um, an NVIDIA vice president says that consoles will never have better graphics than PCs. I feel like everybody's been saying this for a very long time, and uh, we're all just kind of circle-jerking at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, there's an interview with this guy, and he basically says that uh, PC GPU vendors, uh, in other words, uh, AMD and NVIDIA, are the only ones investing Instagrams worth into graphics research. You know, like, I wish he had actually actually said that exactly, uh, word for word. Uh, but uh, billions of dollars worth, anyway. Uh, console vendors must go to uh, these vendors instead, uh, instead of now defunct or less competitive graphics workstation vendors like Silicon Graphics. Hmm. And it seems like uh, you know AMD and NVIDIA have poached all their good engineers anyway. So, and I remember, you know, coming to this conclusion in that uh, going through the OpenGL docs and the API specifications, and like especially the extension registry, you know, it lists, you know, you know, contacts of people, you know, like who came up with this and who like maintains the spec. And over the years, I I've seen people go from like Silicon Graphics to uh, ATI and Nvidia. Interesting. I'd say that one of the other reasons that, you know, consoles will never have better graphics than PCs is simply because you can't sell a console for more than $400, $500. Yeah. And, and uh, PCs, I mean, we're willing to pay premium. 
Yeah, on PC, we can pay more for that just for our GPUs. Yeah. So, and then uh, another point that he makes is that, uh, you know, again, not only with the cost limitations, but also the power limitations. Uh, consoles have power budgets of 200, maybe 300 watts, so they can be put in a living room and stay cool and quiet. Uh, whereas on a PC, you know, you can have over a thousand watts of power going to it. And, you know, a two to three hundred watt PC or, you know, a two to three hundred watt system is never going to beat out, you know, another system where that can just be dedicated to the graphics card alone. Yeah. I can't imagine having only two hundred watts in my computer. Well, unless it was, uh, Something like a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, or well, a, I wouldn't, or I wouldn't a laptop. be gaming on that. Or a laptop. So, although a laptops are much lower than 200 watts. So, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, supporting graphics drivers and stuff, it looks like NVIDIA is releasing documentation for their older GPUs to help the Nouveau project build drivers. And the Novo project is the open source and reverse engineered NVIDIA drivers on Linux. So it sounds like so far the information that they've given them isn't anything that they didn't already know. Um, but it's kind of like a, a good faith, you know, there's more coming soon kind of thing. Yep. So uh, it seems like they are releasing information up until the NV30 series, um, which I'm not sure uh, what cards that is exactly, probably like the GeForce 3 series or so. But yeah, these are like fairly old uh, old hardware. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's see, I'm on Wikipedia here. GeForce 4 went up to the NV28. So this might be the GeForce FX. Yeah, NV38 was the GeForce FX series. So, yeah, uh, the uh, first release is the uh, device control block, which is, like, essentially the outputs of the uh, hardware. Mm-hmm. So, But they claim that uh, more information is coming. So and it seems like uh, this is the reaction to this has been generally positive. And uh, Linus uh, says that one day he hopes to apologize for what he did back there, uh, <gasps> as uh, you had mentioned. Uh, he said that I'm cautiously optimistic that this is a real shift in how NVIDIA perceives Linux. The actual docs released so far have been pretty limited, and in themselves wouldn't be a big thing. But if NVIDIA really does follow up and start opening up more, that would certainly be great. They've already done much better in the ARM SOC space. Uh, than they were on the more traditional GPU side, and I really hope that someday I can just apologize for ever giving them a finger. So, I uh, guess what he's uh, referring to with the ARM sock spaces with their Tegra chips. Oh, yes. So, But, of course, NVIDIA has to, you know, play nicely with the people who are going to be using Tegra chips. Yeah. Um... So, yeah, this is definitely a good thing in that, you know, these are more or less outdated GPUs, uh, but hopefully they can have better support because, uh, 
at church, uh, we have a really old laptop, a really old Dell Latitude uh, that has a GeForce 4 in it. And uh, like I've uh, like consciously made the decision to not upgrade it from like Ubuntu like 10.9 or something or 10.10, you know, like not upgrade it for a few releases uh, because, you know, the binary driver is, you know, quite a bit better in that with the binary driver, uh, like the mouse pointer actually displays properly. <laughs> uh, whereas the open source one does not. Mm. And there was like a few other things and, you know, proper, you know, like uh, TV support is also a good thing. Or at least yeah. a VGA, external VGA support. Especially if you're trying to, you know, run slideshows and whatnot off of it. Yeah, that's pretty much what it does. Like, we turn it on, connect it up, and, you know, run uh, PowerPoint, or whatever LibreOffice calls them. Yeah, it would be very impressive if you could get PowerPoint onto your Ubuntu. <laughs> so, um, Which is another reason that we need to remember, you know, Linux is not Windows, and the Linux community will just kind of make whatever it wants to, because, you know, they're not being paid to do this. Um, so whether it's being like windows or not, you know, it's, it's gotta be, you know, user friendly and it has to have the features that you want and it has to be familiar, um, and charitable. It doesn't even have to be any of those because Linux is do whatever you want. Yeah. So it's, it's mostly self-serving and that, you know, it's great that it's open source and that in theory, you know, it's, you know, more like, yay, this is like for everyone. But it can also be very self-serving in that, you know, these are people who want to do one thing and don't really care about all these other things. So, you know, that's a, really a culture shock for people moving from Windows to Linux in that, uh, you know, they may have been told that, you know, like Linux, oh, it's like exactly like Windows. <clears throat> but Sort of, yeah. <laughs> but that's that's a paradoxical hope. Um but, uh, you know, like, people want it to be exactly like Windows, but they want it to be better, which is impossible. Like, even from a theoretical perspective. Mm -hmm. If it's better, it's not going to be the same. Because it's better. So, yeah. Uh, infinite loop there. <clears throat> so this next article is really, really interesting and kind of psychedelic. Um, so somebody wrote a shader that will display the rasterization patterns of various manufacturers' GPUs, um, and it shows the order that the GPU will spit out pixels within polygons. And these, I mean, when I say psychedelic, I mean psychedelic. Like yeah. the, it's just kind of multicolored images in different patterns, and I, I'm not really sure what I'm looking at here. It sort of um, looks like static. Yeah. So, or like uh, scan lines on a uh, kind TV. Kind of patterned static. Yeah. So, uh, apparently with the uh, latest version, or one of the latest versions of OpenGL, uh, they've had uh, atomic counters in the pixel shaders. Uh, so, <clears throat> this guy originally started out with the, uh, the Haswell GPU, uh, the integrated ones on the Intel CPUs. So... Like, this sort of, uh, you know, lets you analyze how exactly the rasterizer in these GPUs work. 
So, like, the idea is that, uh, like, in the pixel shader, um, like, you increment a color by one, and, like, for, like, a series of pixels, it, you know, goes up, and, you know, this color is then displayed. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, how it changes. And you can uh, pretty much see, like, the green lines, and then, like, in in between, you can see how the, uh, like, the red and the purple and the magenta... I wonder why Haswell's looks like so much smoother and less kind of just all over the place and choppy than the other two. Yeah, the other two uh, is the uh, Kepler. Uh, I think that's the in in I think it's the GeForce GTX like 680. Yeah, that series. would be the 600 series. And then the Southern Islands would be the was it the Radeon 6000s? Or seven thousand? Uh, Six thousand or seven thousand. Yeah. Fairly recent. So um like the implementations like he, he notices the Haswell and the Kepler are sort of similar. Uh and the Southern Islands, the uh the Radeon is totally different from those two. Mm. So and uh you know, maybe someone can look at this and come up with some really wicked and you know, sort of cool way of uh, optimizing, uh, you know, graphics for this. Seems like a lot of work to go to. Yeah, but, uh, you know, by analyzing this, you can see it's like, oh, like this pixel gets processed before this, or so forth, because if you have a huge triangle, you know, if you can sort of tell, you know, which pixels get drawn before others, you might be able to do something with that. Have you ever watched um, like slow motion videos of a web page rendering a uh, or a browser what rendering a web page, and like how some of them go from top to bottom, some of them go from bottom to top, and it's it's really interesting. Uh, not really. I mean, I've seen you know like certain you know parts of a web page you know draw in before others, mm -hmm. and you know it happens within fractions of a second. So ideally. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> like, I'm not sure about you, you, but have you ever gone through, like, algorithms classes? Um, yeah, I'm in one right now. So, like, there's a lot of, you know, ways you can solve problems, and it's very interesting, and you would probably never think of this otherwise, but it's very interesting in that how you can solve a problem backwards. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that opens up, you know, a lot of possibilities in that, hey, this is actually faster when you do it backwards. So, or Sometimes at least... Sometimes the best way to solve a maze is start at the end. <laughs> yep. So, and it's sort of the, uh, like, like on my personal projects, you know, it's sort of like a mixture between the two. Like, I start on, like, the, the UI end... And then I start in the underlying database, and then I sort of like build towards each other, and they sort of meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, which oddly enough is a cryptography method for attacking encryptions <laughs> that use multiple encryptions. Huh. So, um, in all this uh, uh, graphical uh, news, uh, Lucasfilm has said that it will use game engines instead of whatever they do now in post production. Uh, for, you know, making films. Yeah, I thought, 
when I when I saw a different article on this, I thought that it was just for like doing kind of demos to get a rough idea of what the environment would look like with these characters in it. Um, but man, if they're actually going to be using the same technologies as you know my computer's using to play video games, that's pretty darn cool. So uh, this uh, presentation here says uh, the uh, let's see library. Let's see. Not sure what his first name is, but uh, speaking at a conference, we think that computer graphics are will be so realistic in real-time graphics that over the next decade, we'll start to be able to take the post out of post-production, uh, where you'll leave a movie set and the shot is pretty much done. Yeah, I mean, have you seen all of those TF2 videos that everybody's making? Very lifelike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, um, like especially the uh, the meet the team videos. Mm-hmm. I so, was thinking of things like nope.avi. Hmm. Go look it up. So, and you know, I've you know, I've seen plenty of like machinima, uh, like especially in the uh, the Crytek engines. Yes. And especially the demos that Unreal have been putting out about Unreal Four, they look very impressive. Yeah. So and they would uh, slip right into the uh, like the special effects stuff really well. And as we've said before, uh, the the only place that we really, really, really need to do work is like skin, realistic skin stuff, and uh, water effects. Yeah. Um, see, it was a few years ago when uh, like I built my machine in two thousand eight. That uh, you know with CUDA. Like, I opened up one of the uh, the demos there, and, uh, like, it sort of struck me. You know, it was like, oh, this is how they, you know, simulate water. It's essentially like a bunch of balls. Mm-hmm. So. But, but, well, there's, so, yeah, there's the physics of the water, and then I was also thinking of, like, the light effects of, of seeing things through water. Yeah. Which and, is very, very difficult to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, in a video game... That is like, oh, the water looks kind of nice, but, you know, in reality, not so much. Eh. So speaking of CUDA, apparently you will soon be able to use uh, CUDA for Java applications. Really? Yeah. And uh, I don't know how limited this is going to be, but it, uh, it's going, it sounds like a very powerful tool because Java is very widely used. And, uh, you know, if you can leverage the you know, immense number of cores. I mean, it's it's numbering in, like, the hundreds now, right? Mm-hmm. Easily uh, in a graphics card. So... Um, that could speed things up a lot. Yeah, IBM is uh, really looking, looking into this, apparently. Um, so they have a benchmark here of uh, sorting this, you know, huge sets. And, uh, like, they go up to... Like uh, like seven hundred and thirty-eight million uh, things, like to sort mm-hmm. them, and apparently it's forty-eight times faster on a GPU than it is on a you know regular CPU. Still takes like two thousand seconds, but uh... well, uh, I believe this is uh, like actually fractions of a second. Oh, is it? Are those decimals? I think so. Oh, they look like periods to me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, commas, the other mm. thing. Yeah, so apparently on a GPU, uh, let's see, sorting seven hundred million things takes about three seconds, 
uh, compared to 128 seconds otherwise. I don't... Um, you'd have to have an interesting sorting algorithm in order to take advantage of multi-threading, especially on the, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of cores. Uh, uh, let's see, I believe it's merge sort that uh, you can split up the uh, job a little bit. Oh yeah, that that makes perfect sense. So, like, I'm I'm not sure how well quick sort could be uh, divided up, but I suppose it would be possible since mm -hmm. it's a you know again a uh, divide and conquer thing, in that you uh, sort things on like two sides of a pivot, and then like you keep on dividing that up. Right, and then you can do both pivots on different. Yeah. Yeah, both sides. Yeah. So, um, you know, depending on how far this gets, uh, the GPU in my home server might finally be able to do something. Other than sit there? Yeah. And, lo and look pretty? <laughs> well, it's not even looking pretty at all, because uh, right now there's no monitor hooked up to it. <laughs> so, and it only has a, a big, uh, not-so-pretty aluminum heatsink strapped to it. Oh, you know, those turned me right on. <laughs> so, and I think it's like a GeForce 210. It's like a very small thing. So, I believe... Any, uh, anything that's like lower than a 500, I don't even know what the numbers mean. <laughs> so That's how recent I am to this game. Yeah, um, yeah, I wanted something small that didn't really take a lot of power. And I think that's... Uh, the uh, GPU I put in my mom's computer as well. You know, it's it's fast enough to run uh, like the 3D accelerated desktop and play uh, YouTube uh, where available on your ISP. Hi, mom. So, uh, IBM is also playing playing around with multi-tenancy in Java 8. Uh, this is a way to run multiple programs in a single uh, Java virtual machine. Uh, this is to save on memory and other system resources. So, like, the way it happens now is that, you know, each, you know, Java program has its own little uh, process. It has its own JVM, its own instance. Uh, but with this, it can be combined a little bit and hopefully save on uh, memory a little bit. And there's also implications on uh, uh, how many threads get allocated. Uh, to, like, background uh, compiling and stuff, and uh, garbage collection. Any memory that we can uh, save is good memory. Yep. You know, even though memory is cheap, if we can still use it efficiently, we can do still more things. Yeah. And, I mean, even, even you know, when I'm when I have 16 gigs of RAM here, you know, running something like Minecraft and running a Minecraft server at the same time on one machine is uh, kind of getting pushing it close. Yeah. So, and uh, like pretty much the only close, <clears throat> excuse me, the only uh, like the only big uh, memory consumer I have on my system are actual virtual machines, mm, like yeah. operating system level, not uh, Java type virtual machines. So So if I asked you who the world's largest semiconductor chip supplier was by revenue, uh who would you guess? Um well, I would have guessed Intel since like they're pretty much the biggest 
uh, you know, semiconductor people out there. Yeah, I mean, that that's a perfectly reasonable guess, uh, assumption to make. But apparently, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company is now the largest uh, semiconductor chip supplier. Um, so they make things like pretty much most ARM chips that you can think of. Um, and they also make the chips that are found in uh, graphics cards. GPUs. But, like, yeah. we've just been talking about those. Whoa! <laughs> Hey, it's like this show has a theme. <laughs> At least for this week. <laughs> so, yeah, it uh, turns out that TSMC uh, has sold $11.98 billion, or uh, Instagram's worth, of semiconductor chips in the second quarter of this year, surpassing Intel at 11.79. So, yeah, I'm wondering... Uh, like how much capacity uh, TSMC has versus Intel. So, and uh, like I recall, like several years ago, whenever, uh, like, say, ATI would be moving to a smaller fabrication process, that there would be a lot of uh, delays in doing that, in that, you know, it's like, oh, this next generation of graphics cards isn't going to be widely available because TSMC cannot get its act together on... (laughs) like going to 45 nanometer uh, production or whatever. I'm beginning to think that Intel is really missing out on something big uh, because they have never really gotten into the arm arms race. Oh my gosh, did I just say that? But um <laughs> So um, you know they're sort of you know actually realizing this and they're sort of doing stuff with their uh, their uh, atom. CPUs. Yeah. So, yep. Though I do I do admit that Haswell is uh, a very very good uh ultrabook, you know, architecture. Yeah. Um before then, I was like, you know, if I'm going to get a a laptop that I want to be as portable as possible, I'll probably go with something that actually has an ARM chip because I don't need it to be very powerful. Chromebook, um, hello. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Haswell is actually a very, very good uh, trade-off in terms of power versus power consumption and uh, battery life. And uh, compatibility with everything else. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, as long as it's on the internet, I can do it on my Chromebook. Hey, speaking of the internet and uh, Google and Chromebooks and stuff... Uh, Google has spent 21 Instagrams worth on data centers. That's uh, quite a bit of money. Is that is that over the entire history of their company, or is that, like, just this year? Uh, apparently it's since 2006. Okay. So, and I guess they weren't really spending that much uh, before then. Or they didn't have their own data centers before then. I remember on the... Um the XKCD What If blog recently, he had an article where he analyzed... Uh, Punch uh, cards. He, he approximated, yeah, how much storage space Google data centers had by figuring out how much money they were spending on them. Yeah, so uh, this is, uh, you know, really interesting in that, you know, this is sort of like, you know, how much infrastructure they have, and you can you know, sort of tell, like, there's a spike in this graph, 
you know, I'm not sure if that was like they were opening like three or so data centers or just replacing all of their equipment. Oh, yes. So, like, I'm not sure how fast Google cycles through their equipment, but, um, you know, it's sort of, you know, weird in that, you know, I think it might be about once every minute, one hard drive, you know, somewhere in Google dies. Yeah. At least, you know, like, uh, you know, like a Google data center, you know, might have like every day, like one in a thousand hard drives die. But if you have 3000 hard drives in your data center, that's like three every day. Yeah. And then you have to, you know, get, go and grab them and uh, wipe them and, and crush them. and Yeah, and like uh, get on your Segway. <laughs> <laughs> We've got these little colored bikes. <laughs> ring, ring. So, hey, speaking of Google, uh, Google is now seeing 2% of their traffic as uh, in, uh, IPv6. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is, you know, uh, finally starting to take over the world. Um, so, uh, on, uh, let's see, we, October 27th, 2012, that's when they crossed 1%. And the, and now today there's more, more than twice as many connected users, uh, since the world IPv6 launch in June 2012. I, there is there's a site where you can check to see if your connection supports IP, IPv6, right? Yeah. Um, I, I I don't think that my house's router could support it, but I'm betting that. I mean, I hope that the university does, because otherwise we're not cool. <laughs> so um, I definitely know for sure that my router does not support IPv6 because I actually looked it up. Hmm. So and unfortunately, it doesn't support uh, Tomato or any other sort of uh, third-party uh, router firmware that would support it. So, but uh, that uh, so yeah, I'll probably have to replace my router when uh, Verizon will get around to you know doing IPv6, uh, and they're probably going to be the last to do so. But that's okay because I couldn't get YouTube anyways. <laughs> Now, hopefully, when they make that switch, you know, if if you have to get a new router for it, uh, you know, I, I would hope that Verizon would buy you the new router because. Um, well, uh, I actually have a router from Verizon, but I'm not using it right now because it sucks and it's slow, <laughs> and it totally does not support a home server. So, Sad. Yeah, like uh, uh, like initially when I got it. You know, it only has fast Ethernet and I think it only 802.11G. So, like, no 802.11N or gigabit Ethernet. So, like, the transfers between my desktop and my server slowed way down. And uh, so when I went to my website, which is hosted on the computer right behind me, um, like, going to my URL or my domain name, it went to the router login page not to huh. that back there. And I'm like, okay, this is really weird. This is bad. So I went to a speed test site, you know, and, you know, that was coming through back to my server just fine from outside 
my network, but just locally, it, it wouldn't do it. Weird. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's not how networks are supposed to work. No, not generally. But then again, I'm not exactly a network engineer, so... so. I mean, we'd ha- we'll have to test it by having a, a LAN party. <laughs> yeah. But, um... Yeah, speaking of not being a uh, network engineer, I'm a software engineer. Uh, so I use things like Python uh, and Java. Uh, speaking of Python, JetBrains uh, releases a free version of PyCharm 3. That's a Python-focused uh, integrated development environment. So instead of using you know something like Eclipse, yeah, you can use this for Python development. Of course... IDEs make me very, very lazy at programming because I don't have to remember exactly what I want to, to say. I just kind of rem- need to remember the gist of it, and then it'll tell me what I want to know. Well, which is okay because, you know, programming is not its not entirely about syntax and remembering libraries. It's, you know, focusing on the big problems of how to move data around and the timing of things and, like, architecting systems Right. You know, the minutia of syntax is, you know, like really trivial. It should be very trivial. I suppose we can view IDEs as our uh, personal assistants then, and we're the, you know, CEOs or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, JetBrains uh, also uh, does uh, another IDE called uh, IntelliJ, which is sort of like the third or so most popular Java IDE. So, I so, pers- uh, I personally have never uh, tried that out, but I've you know come across people who swear by it. So, so wow, what's that noise? Uh, that is someone driving by. That's not the garbage truck. Hmm. Or no, that might be the garbage truck. Hang on, it's turning around. It sounds very very ominous from here. Okay. Yeah, for the past, uh, let's see, uh, I think it was like two days ago that, you know, I'm at the very corner of my apartment apartment complex and, you know, like there's an almost 270 degree turn right outside my building. And, uh, you know, occasionally, like especially when I moved in, it was like every night I could tell when the garbage truck went by because it would have to back up a little bit on the other end in order to keep going. (laughs) But, uh, like, whatever driver they have must be really good at making uh, those sharp turns. I'm always impressed by people who have to drive huge things because they're very good at what they do. Yep. Except when they're not. (laughs) So, um, uh, speaking of IDEs and stuff, uh, Ryan Bennett, uh, which apparently uh, founded Atomic Garden, uh, he has explained why he is moving away from uh, ASP.net. So wait, what is what is Atomic Garden? Apparently a company making software for web and mobile devices. Oh, okay. So apparently it's not a, any kind of uh, big service or anything. So, uh, you know, ASP.net is uh, Microsoft's uh, web stack. And uh, uh, Ryan here goes on saying that... Uh, the licensing costs for Microsoft software is insane. 
uh, you know, it's uh, too restrictive and it costs too much. Uh, restrictive in being that you're pretty much tied down to Windows and like everything else in the Microsoft, you know, uh, ecosystem. Uh, Microsoft's target audience uh, builds products that are generally poorly written and lag many years behind the current platform version. Uh, other open platforms can be used with little to no cost and lower overall total cost of ownership. Now, uh, if they're moving away from ASP.NET, are they still going to be making things that are compatible with Windows? Um, well, I, I should. I mean, I would hope that the answer is yes, because that's. I would imagine that's where most of their customers are. So, um, but you'd be surprised at how you know flexible companies are. You know, in that you know some companies just want a website that does these things. They don't really care. Uh, about you know what the minutia of it are, you know they mm. you know, typically hire someone that knows this stuff anyway, or you know pay someone else to run it. So, you know he's uh, talking about moving to you know other platforms, and I think specifically he's talking about uh, Node.js. So, oh yeah, I mean if they're doing it in JavaScript, then it'll work everywhere. So he says that, you know, the largest web applications on the planet, Google, Facebook, and Twitter, use non-Microsoft technology, and I do too. So so speaking of uh, those big internet companies, how many of them would you say are, are probably evil? Oh, well, depends on how evil is evil. I mean, you could say that, you know, Microsoft is evil. You can say that Apple is evil. Hell, you could probably argue that Google is evil. Hey, last Ironic one. Ironically. <laughs> uh, so most people probably wouldn't list LinkedIn as, uh, you know, their go-to company for hating on for being evil. But apparently LinkedIn is being sued uh, class action style by some of their users who claim that LinkedIn hacked their email accounts uh, and sent spam, you know, marketing emails to <laughs> to the people in their um, in their contacts lists. So yeah, apparently this is happening in San Jose in a U.S. district court, uh, saying that used memory members' identities without consent and broke into their third-party email accounts to send promotional emails to the members' contact lists. Uh, the 46-page complaint details many instances in which users complained, especially in instances where LinkedIn sent emails to the addresses of spouses, clients, opposing counsel, etc. So uh, the plaintiffs claim that LinkedIn provides no functional way to stop multiple subsequent advertising emails from being sent. The plaintiffs say that the extent of the data gathering was not adequately adequately conveyed in the terms of service. So, um, LinkedIn charges its own members $10 per email sent by its members to another member. So this could, uh, you know, rack up some serious money for them. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and LinkedIn is pretty much the only sort of uh, social network for professionals. So, you know, this is getting very serious very fast. So, um, RSA, uh, which is a big security company uh, named after the uh, 
uh, people who made the algorithm, and apparently they co-founded this company, uh, they tell its customers to stop using dual ECDRBG. Uh, that's the cryptographic random number generator that was supposedly weakened by the NSA. And that weakening happened, like, many, many years ago, right? Yeah, like... Back when they were coming up with the AES uh, uh, standard, right? Or was, that, or was that DES? Uh, this was well after DES. Okay. Uh, DES was, like, from the 70s. Yeah. This is uh, much more recent. Uh, I'm not sure when exactly this standard came out. Uh, I'm thinking maybe 2006, but I'm thinking maybe sometime in the 90s. Uh, but in any case, you know, it's highly suspected that the uh, NSA, through its suggestions, uh, somehow weakened the standard uh, because they were incorporated in it. As my uh, cryptography professor likes to say, randomness is hard, and creating random numbers oftentimes requires already present randomness. Pretty much. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, especially... You know, that's sort of going away now with uh, the presence of hardware uh, random generators. Yeah. So, and uh, I recall, I think I might have actually mentioned it, that uh, the uh, newer Intel CPUs have uh, hardware uh, generators on them as well. Oh, wow. And uh, Linus was coming under fire for, you know, including that in the, uh, the Linux kernel uh, random number generator. And, you know, Linus, you know, fired back saying, he's like, okay, you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, look at the source. Uh, it's only a component of the uh, number generator. So it's, it's not using it raw. It's, you know, mixing it in with whatever random entropy pool that uh, the kernel already has. Mm. So... Yeah, apparently don't use this uh, dual EC DRBG, but uh, you know, as I had mentioned uh, on a previous podcast, that's kind of uh, hard to find anyway, uh, as in not many things implemented. So uh, here's some old stuff I found, uh, you know, lying around. The six stages of field service support. And this is uh, written back in the days when mainframes were the thing. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah. Uh, so, like, companies, you know, like that had, you know, huge mainframe systems. And this uh, also references, you know, IBM PC. So I'd imagine this is sometime in the mid-80s or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the uh, this is a rather lengthy... Thing that you know goes through the process of oh your mainframe has a problem, you know starting with the phone call to the company, and you know they want you to you know flick a few switches and you know it's like what lights are lit up, and uh, you know have also, you tried turning it off and turning it back on? You pretty much don't want to do that in a business, <laughs> like especially when this is like the only computer that everyone is using. Yeah. Um. So, you know, and it, you know, explains how you would, you know, stand beside the, uh, the, uh, the writer terminal, which seems to be, you know, just like a printer, essentially, that they, that, you know, someone at, you know, a local office would, you know, essentially talk to you by, you know, printing things on this. 
and then it details how the field service engineer comes out and you know you know uh, messes around with a few things and if that doesn't work he'll call in another guy and they'll you know start you know digging a little deeper and like if in two days then you go to the next stage and you know by this point your your uh, computer is looking like how it did when it was initially assembled. Uh, and that is, is being disassembled a little bit, <laughs> you know, escalating all the way to, uh, it's like, oh, here's, uh, you know, a new version of our product, you know, to tell everyone else, you know, to upgrade to avoid this problem. I found this a little uh, humorous. It's a rather lengthy read, too. know if it's a, a, depre- a deprecate or an appreciate, uh, but uh, remember me mentioning Grokbox? No. What was it? It's the uh, the custom firmware for MP3 players. Ah. So, and uh, I also mentioned the Opus codec a while back, like that sort of new uh, thing that I think it's Skype is doing that's sort of like MP3, but uh, is a lot more efficient. Uh, it turns out that the most recent release of Rockbox supports this Opus codec, and it has since before I talked about either one of them. Uh, unfortunately, my Sansa player crashes when trying to play any Opus file I throw at it. Man, you are truly a nerd when you just try throwing random file formats at your MP3 player just to see what happens. Hey, it's supposed to uh, support it. Um, let's see, it sort of uh, panicked me uh, uh, for a, a bit uh, when you know, it, it crashed and then it would not respond and I thought I had bricked the thing. <laughs> so did you, do you even find files like in Opus format regularly or did you have to take some MP3s and convert them? I converted a few. Okay. So, anyways, it seems like you have something. Yeah, so I would like to deprecate uh, Emacs' keyboard shortcuts because they are actually typically much, much longer than any, uh, you know, keystrokes that I could use with the mouse to get to where I'm going. Um, Saving requires hitting uh, Control-X, Control-S. It's not just, you know, one one set of, uh, you know, two buttons to hit at once. It's a set of two buttons to hit at once, and then another set of two bit buttons to hit at once. Um, you know, things like things like uh, copy and pasting used to be so intuitive. You know, it's Control C and Control V. They're right there. They're where my fingers rest anyway. I would. I, many people would argue that that is not intuitive, like uh, Ted Nelson. But at least it's easy because I just need to keep it's, my. It's pinky everywhere on control. else. It's everywhere yeah, it, else. It's where it's. It is everywhere else. Um, but no, so I like I had to completely re-teach myself keyboard shortcuts when we started writing uh, um, bash files in Emacs, and it was kind of the worst thing ever until until just like two days ago, I discovered 
that there's an option for turning on like standard keyboard shortcuts. I forget what they call them, like, I don't know, CUA shortcuts or something like that. And I was like, oh, what's that do? And then suddenly everything that I had ever learned actually worked for me. <laughs> cool. So, but uh, then again, Emacs is a really old program. It is, yeah. Um, let's see, especially the one that uh, Stallman made. Uh, like, that's from like the late 70s, I think. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, that came along before all these shortcuts were actually standardized by everyone else. Yeah, and when you're, when you're using it, um, you know, in the command line, you can't really use the keyboard shortcuts that are already claimed by the command line, such as, you know, control Z, that won't work as undo, because that, yeah, uh, that, that stops kills. what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, like I, I, I was reading a, like a story on Emacs that, you know, how initially that essentially it uses a Lisp interpreter. Um, like that's what, you know, fires up initially uh, when you launch the thing and that how initially that added so much to the launch time of this. Uh, but now, uh, you know, on modern machines, it's actually quite fast, you mm -hmm. know, and faster than a lot of other simple word processors or editors or whatever. Yeah. So, interesting. So, yeah, I uh, did mention uh, on the party cast uh, ATN uh, last weekend that, you know, yeah, Moore's Law might be coming to an end, but we have all this cool stuff now. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, essentially what it does for you. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get any, uh, podcast feedback this week, so... Oh, and I, I don't think you can expect any feedback from me this week, since I'm here right now. Well, that's giving okay. You, giving you my thoughts in real time. That's okay, maybe Chris might write in. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that'll be ironic. <laughs> well, um, anyways, you can do that by using the, uh, contact link. And don't forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day, so back up your stuff. Hey. So, um, yeah. Uh, what have you been, uh, let's see, you've said that you've been going through a lot of programming languages in class. Yep. So, um, what, what are you on now and what are you going to? Um, so, tomorrow we start a lab on, uh, C, and I don't know what we're going to be doing with C, but, uh, our, our professor's been demonstrating ways in which it is very, very easy to read memory that you really shouldn't be reading at all, yeah. and uh, getting bogus, you know, integers out of it when, you know, it's it's a simple array, and it's just supposed to be a, you know, ten Empty. numbers. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and actually, it was really funny, because he, he tried to show us how he could, uh, he, he created a string that didn't end in, you know, a zero character. A and, null. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. And uh, and he tried to get it to just print out huge strings, but for some reason, uh, the system is now very, very efficient at zeroing out memory and, uh, and you know, clearing it that way. And so he was pretty much just getting, like, one extra character out ever. Huh. So, uh, or a buffer overflow. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember... Uh, 
back at that one college I was only at for uh, three weeks, uh, I kind of saw some of that with uh, C. So it's like, yeah, you know, create this uh, int here and, you know, don't uh, set it to anything. And yet it's still something. Yeah. So, and that was, you know, pretty much left over by whatever was using it before. You know, that's, you know, you know, things like, you know, Java and, you know, other modern uh, languages with the runtimes. You don't have to worry about, you know, actually presetting your variables. Which is really nice because I don't want to have to do that. So, you know, sometimes, you know, it's convenient to do that when you declare it. So... But, uh, yeah, definitely a case-by-case basis. So, and, uh, let's see. It was, like, yesterday or two days ago, we had uh, another launch for our client at work. And that went pretty well. So, and uh, we'll be having another one, I think, in maybe two weeks or so. Okay. So, yeah, I wonder how that will go. It seems to be running along okay, although the whole project has been kind of fast. So, our work is never over. Yep. So, and you know, like I said, that uh, you know, right now it doesn't seem like the well is going to be running dry, judging by the uh, the length of my uh, bug list. <laughs> but uh, now that has uh, shrunk dramatically. So. But, you know, there's still things to chew on, like uh, the Google Maps API. Oh, what are you doing with that? Uh, using it in a store locator. So, huh. like on, uh, you know, like an e-commerce website, you know, it's like, come visit our one of our actual stores. So, uh, they want, uh, you know, like a Google Map widget, you know, right, right beside the address. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, uh... Like, I also have to work with uh, geocoding, uh, which involves, you know, taking an address and converting it into latitude-longitude coordinates. Oh, boy. So, like, if you only have a handful of stores, like, say, 200 or so, like, you can run all those through, like, once a month and just, you know, have those handy. So each time someone pulls it up, you know, you don't have to convert that again. So, yep. Uh, aside from that, you know, I'll just be uh, playing games and stuff and posting blog posts about them. So Sounds like uh, a fun time. Yep. <laughs> so, alright, so I guess that's it here, so uh, have a good one. Yay.